0: Let's talk about the future of news.
1: I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news.
0: The state of journalism today. They have what I call the ideology of objectivity. Telling both sides of a a controversial story. Insisting language must bear some relationship to truth and to logic. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job.
1: That is our job.
0: Hey there and welcome to episode 3 of the Airman in Stockholm podcast, a podcast about journalism, the media and our place in the world. And when I started that I thought, God, it's going to be difficult enough to find subjects to talk about. And now I have this long list of subjects that's going to take us until at least Christmas to get through. Uh, What I want to talk about this week is uh, politics and how we cover politics because Sweden is going to the polls soon in what is expected to be one of the most groundbreaking elections in the history of what what was once a social democratic state. Over the last 10 or 15 years or so the Sweden Democrats, a party with its roots in the neo-Nazi movement, has seen its support snowball and they could end up as either the second biggest party or even the biggest party in the country after polling day. So what challenges does this pose for journalism and for journalists trying to cover populist movements all over the world where facts are often secondary to feelings of fear and dread and of anger? When I first moved to Stockholm almost 20 years ago, the idea of the Sweden Democrats being in power would have been unthinkable. And when I covered their first successful general election campaign back in 2010, nobody really thought that they would make an impact in Parliament. In Parliament, they arguably haven't, but that might change when they hold the balance of power. So, how then should journalists hold them to account? I spoke to Christian Kistensen, who is Professor of Journalism at Stockholm University, about how we should cover the far right and about whether or not the likes of Jimmy Jokisen and Marine Le Pen should even be given a platform at all. We started by talking about Sweden's image over the years and how it has become something of a whipping boy for the far right around the world. Well, I mean really you would have to say it started just three or four years ago with the
1: intake of Syrian refugees. I mean really a lot of people who talk about Sweden on the far right in relationship to refugees really only talk about it in terms of what happened after 2013 and 2014. Seemingly unaware of the fact that Sweden took in a huge number of refugees, for example, from Iraq after the war. Uh, one Swedish town uh, so that Talia took more Iraqi refugees than the United States and Canada combined. Uh, but that's never discussed. Um, nor is it discussed about Bosnian Muslims that came in after the, the former Yugoslavia. Uh, refugees in from Iran in the late 70s. So there's nothing new about Sweden's intake of refugees, Muslim refugees, uh, but really because of the huge numbers that came in, and also because of social media, the availability of the kind of information that was flowing in, you saw a real shift in the way in which Sweden was presented. And I would say that a lot of it has to do with the mythology about the country. uh, That is uh, the certain notion that (laughs) Uh, Sweden was some kind of uh, utopia before this but the irony is from the right as far as I'm concerned is that many of the people who talk about the way Sweden used to be in quotation marks which essentially means before immigration this was a country that was more leftist than it is today so the people who criticize Sweden wouldn't want to live here in the <laughs> 1950s that's the irony would they want to live in a country that for 50 out of 60 years actually 60 out of 70 years had a social democratic government essentially a one-party government for almost half a century Yet they talk about it in these romantic terms. In other words, they're completely divorcing politics from immigration. Mm. I mean, Swedish immigration policy is a result of that social democratic history. Mm. It's not in spite of it. Mm. And so there's a certain, well it's not a certain irony, there's a heavy irony in this kind of romanticism of a country, uh, considering the fact that the politics of the country that they're romanticizing is one that they would probably hate. Mm.
0: When you look at the sort of media discourse around Sweden, and like we're sitting in Stockholm right now, so there's sort of two different aspects of it. One is the external media, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of international media, and one is the, the, the domestic media. Right? Yes. So the international media image, how have you seen that change, and what factors have led to that change?
1: This is primarily a kind of, um, a sort of, it would be in the news if there was some kind of quirky thing about social democracy, about, you know, fathers taking care of children. Mm-hmm. About some kind of feminism issue, but that was really pretty much the extent of it. With with the war in um, North Africa and, and went with with the intake of Syrian refugees, what you saw was uh, this became an issue. And of course, it became a very easy thing for the international media to jump on. Right. A little country, stereotypically homogenous, which it never really was. But we you know anyway. That's the image. Right. Uh, very very specific sort of cultural images: Bjorn Borg and Abba. Uh, You have the sort of racial stereotypes. Of course, all of this sort of clashed against that. Mm. And so it became a question of, you know, how is this kind of mythological country that we've been talking about for all these years changed? Mm. And, of course, it was uninteresting to people to actually look at what was actually going on in Sweden in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Mm. Uh, Sweden has always been a very capitalistic country. I've written about this a bunch of times. Sweden is one of the biggest weapons exporters in the world per capita. Nobody really knows that. We talk about IKEA, which actually isn't Swedish. It's now a Dutch charity. Uh, We 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 never talk about weapons exports. We never talk about Sweden's heavy uh, capitalistic bent. I mean, this this is not a Marxist country. This is a country that has embraced capitalism. What's different is, of course, it has social safety nets that places like the United States don't have. So what happened was this sort of became well, what happened to this country that basically never existed, in a way? <laughs> a and mad, I would say, idea. yeah, and then of course, in conjunction with that came the sort of rise of far-right media that started using Sweden as the sort of case study in how not to have immigration policy. Mm. Um, primarily rooted in that question of ethnicity. Mm. I mean, not, not in any other factual arguments, but essentially, here was a country that was essentially all white and Christian, and it's not anymore and you know, how could leftists have done this? Yeah. Of course, ignoring the fact that the policy that essentially started the intake of refugees came under a conservative administration, but we don't want to talk about that either because that doesn't fit the the, the rhetoric.
0: It is fascinating because I, I often find, like, uh, for instance, we're talking a few days after those 100 cars burnt in uh, Gothenburg yes. on the west coast, and it was one of those things where uh, I hadn't been trolled uh, on Twitter for a long time by people, and then all of a sudden, as soon as that happened, now I was actually working on a different story that morning, so mm-hmm. I didn't actually see it until a little bit later on. Right. And then when I did see it, I went to work on it, you know? But it's only ever those things, yeah. and it's always presented to you as if, look at what you've done, Yes. <laughs> yes. you know? Of course. Um, but if we talk about the difference between uh, the the Swedish media or mm-hmm. the Swedish view of Sweden and the international yes. view of Sweden, is there a tangible difference between how the far right in Sweden sees Sweden and how the international far right sees Sweden?
1: Not that I've really noticed. I mean, I think that what you see is that. I mean this also goes back to uh, really the start of the Sweden Democrats as a, as a legitimate party in Sweden in 2006. They, they ran for the, in the, 2000. that's the year I moved to Sweden. They ran in the 2006 election. They almost got in, but they didn't get in. Um, and people in Sweden were sort of traumatized by the, just the possibility of them getting into parliament then. Uh, then of course in 2010 they got in, in 2014 their vote went up, and now we're looking at the possibility of them being the second largest or potentially even the largest party in Sweden. Um, And so I think that part of the way in which, for example, the right in Sweden, the far right in Sweden has reacted is in part a result of, you can criticize the way in which the Swedish media dealt with the issue back 10, 15 years ago. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about this, you know, do you engage with this party uh, or do you freeze them out? Freezing out was the initial policy. And then once they got into parliament, you know, public broadcasters in Sweden are required by law to represent them. You can't sort of ignore parties that are sitting in parliament. And so there's there's a legitimate argument to be made that by not really engaging in the issues that they were talking about, I mean, when I would say engaging, I don't mean necessarily legitimizing them, but addressing them head on. You actually added fuel to the fire by by actually adding to this notion that there's a sort of secrecy that we don't want to talk about immigration and things like that. And I think in part also it's linked to a rather naive Swedish self-view in terms of things like racism and the far right. I mean, Sweden um, puts its money where its mouth is when it comes to the intake of refugees. I mean, no one can say anything otherwise. I mean, this is a tiny country, is taken a massive number. But the self-image, I think, was also slightly utopian as well. I mean, mm-hmm. newspapers here as well sort of push this image. And and you know, there isn't really a great deal of discussion about racism necessarily in this country. People yeah. tend to be rather in denial about the fact that there's there's a there's a fairly large amount of racism illustrated by the fact that when the Sweden Democrats almost got into Parliament in 2006, no one in Sweden would even conceive of the notion that they would get, you'd be laughed out of the room. Mm. If you said 10 years from now they'll be getting 20, that the the, the Social Democrats would be on 22, people would say you're nuts, right? And that's what happened. So the question is where do these voters come from? Well, they were there. It's not like they they, they were born in 2006 and they grew up quickly. They were there and this, this sort of feeling was there and that's probably something that the Swedish media should've tackled more straight on ten years ago.
0: Mm. Um, I mean, your job is basically to teach the journalists of the future how to do these things, right? So Mm. if we look back over two sort of parallel uh, situations, one is the situation in Sweden where the Sweden Democrats double their vote every year from 2006 and are now, as you say, probably or possibly uh, said to become the biggest party in the Mm. country. We also saw a very divisive uh, presidential campaign in the United States of America. Now using much of the same rhetoric, many Mm. of the same arguments, but... You know, my question to you is how do you how do you argue with smoke? How mm. do you argue with people who have no interest in facts who have no interest in anything other than othering anything other than mm. saying that it's the fault of these people let's get rid of them. How do you deal with that as a journalist?
1: Well I mean I mean, I'm a professor in the journalism department here, and I mean, I'm, I've never been a practical journalist. I mean, I, my, my work in large part has been looking at the media and uh, you know, how they work, their financing, their structure, those kinds of questions. But I mean, in terms of w- when we have students here, I mean, this is essentially one of the things that came out in what happened yesterday in the United States with this this sort of 300 newspapers writing in their editorials about the value of yeah. Journalism. I mean, it's a big thing that came out, like mm. started by the Washington Post as an attack against Trump's attack on the media. Yeah. Uh, and really, that is f- that is basically the primary way in which you combat any kind of disinformation, and that is with just good, decent journalism. Mm. And the problem is that sounds like a sort of cop out to say that. I mean, there's, there's no direct activist answer to this. Yeah. But really, the only way to combat misinformation is with accuracy and facts. Mm. And one of the problems that journalism in the United States has had is that it has pushed this notion of objectivity and neutrality and balance to the point where it's actually used against them as an argument, if you understand what I mean. they they sort of take this near religious view about objectivity. So if you discuss one thing from one side, you have to give the opposing point of view. Well, one of the arguments has to be that there are certain things where there is no opposing point of view. Racism does not have a counter argument. You can't, you know, and and that's what I mean. Uh, Climate change and global warming, we're having this discussion right now in Sweden. To what extent do you give climate change deniers a voice in the in the in the service of objectivity. Mm. And I think that's one of the things is that one thing that journalism has to address is the way in which they've sort of fetishized a little bit this notion of objectivity and balance. Because mm. there are things where there's no rational argument that there is a counter argument. Yeah. And I think that, and of course, what happens is you're then accused on the flip side of being an activist. If mm-hmm. you then say there's no counter argument to this argument, then they're saying, well, you're just being, that's just propaganda then. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean, there are certain facts that you have to accept as facts. And that's one of the problems is that the baseline has disappeared. It's no longer possible to have a discussion sometimes because people can't even agree on the basic facts. Yeah. Is the sky blue? No, it isn't. Well, then we can't have a discussion about yeah. the sky. And it's the same thing about politics. If all media are lying in the United States, for example, then what discussion can you have about the free press? You can't have it. And I think the only thing that the press can do is to continue reporting. I will say, however, that I find this this sort of argument by the press in the United States to be a little bit disingenuous. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the press in the United States have milked this Trump situation to their own benefit, saying, look at us, we're the bastions of democracy there's a lot of criticism from academia and from other people leveled against the US media for a long time. Yeah. That they are anything but objective when it comes to, for example, corporate power mm. or their relationship to power. Mm. They've had a very, very tight relationship. Now suddenly they're like, how did this possibly happen? Right? You know, how did we possibly get Trump? Well, one of the reasons we got Trump and one of the reasons things are happening in Europe is for 50 years in the United States, we never really had a serious discussion about the influence of money on politics. Yeah newspapers did not want to address the influence of advertising on media content. Mm. Then suddenly they're shocked, in quotation marks, to discover that this leads to a guy who ran a game show and failed casinos completely unqualified to become president. Mm. Well, that did not just happen out of the blue. That happened as a consequence of a political system that they haven't challenged. Mm. So I think the journalism's role, I mean, if if you really want to have a serious discussion about journalism and politics, then you have to start from the the base idea that the role of journalism is to question all forms of power, Mm. whether it's political, economic, or social. When that's the point of departure, then I think you can have a real. And that also means addressing some of the things that Trump supporters are also interested in, which is, Corporate power, unemployment, poverty. I mean, of course there are issues that Sweden Democrat supporters have in common with Social Democrat support. They're worried about foreign workers coming and taking their jobs. And if we pretend like that's not an issue for people, that is, you know, then I think we're missing the point. Sweden Democrats push another rhetoric. But what I mean is that if the media took a firmer line, and I mean, Swedish media are better than the US, then you might see people saying, well, you know what, I don't agree with them but at least they're really addressing some of the questions I have yeah. about power. And I think that is where both media systems have failed. It's like they're not significantly addressing these kinds of questions.
0: I find it amazing that the um, New York Times is sort of looked on by the right at times as being this bastion of liberalism. Oh, yeah. And certain people on the liberal side are going, it's. Oh. I mean, this is basket. a
1: newspaper that basically supported the Iraq War. This is probably one of the status quo elite conservative. I mean, I say conservative with a small c. Yeah. They, they endorse democratic candidates. Mm. But of course, you have to go as a point of departure that the democratic party in the United States is actually left-wing, which mm. it isn't. I mean, by any standard, if the, if the democrats were running a candidate in Europe, they would not be social democrats. So they would be center-right, center right. they would be moderater, they'd be center centerpartiette in Sweden, right? Yeah. And of course, but this this is part of a culture war that's been going on in the United States since the 60s. Yeah. Uh, this, this war against the media, this left-wing media thing, It's a very, I mean, I think for Europeans it's hard to really understand how powerful this, because you laugh at that when people hear that, like the New York Times is like a Marxist, These people say, how can you possibly think that? That's because these papers, and we're going all the way back pre-Vietnam, through the Civil Rights Movement, through the Feminist Movement, this is the way in which these issues have been pitched, and this is what's happened to the Republican Party. Mm. They went from being a party that was, you know... If you compare the Republicans in the 1950s, they're unrecognizable to what they are today, like Eisenhower. I mean, yeah. you see a party that was in favor of social safety nets, but capitalism, right? Yeah. To a party that became what we see today. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in the 60s, you said, well, this is the war that we're engaged in. This has to do with abortion. This has to do with the war. This has to do with civil rights. Mm-hmm. You see that this, this is a cluster of newspapers and media organizations that basically hates the right. Yeah. And you know and that works because um, in, g- in general, newspapers in the United States don't come out as overtly conservative, but that's if you define conservative as being in favor of the Republican Party. Yeah. But when it comes to Wall Street, when it comes to advertising, when it comes to war, look yeah. at the Iraq war. I mean, just look on September the 12th how the US media reacted. There's your answer to how, conser- how liberal they are. Yeah. This was the most sort of hawkish pro-war group of people. Bomb who never want to bomb everything, right? <laughs> And then, and but that discourse is very powerful, and you're seeing the origins of those, that discourse here in Europe too, that mm-hmm. the media themselves are part of the problem, not in the same extent. Yeah. Newspapers in Sweden and media still have trust even from those on the right, you don't see that level of, no, but yeah. it's disappearing.
0: Yeah. Um, I have seen, I've lived in Sweden since 1999 and I've covered pretty much everything everywhere in Scandinavia for a long time and I've seen a change in the way that these things are discussed. You moved here in 2006. 2006. But you've obviously had a sort of a, an eye because of your heritage. Yeah, my mother's Swedish. Yeah, switched, yeah. So, so you've known sort of what's going on. Have you seen a change in the discourse? Because And the reason I'm asking this question is because I, I can, I, without putting dates on it, I can see how things have changed, how things that would have been accept, unacceptable to yeah. say in 2006 yeah. are on posters for the upcoming election. Yeah, outside yeah. the. Building right yeah. here. Yeah,
1: you see, you see, political parties saying no to uh, call for prayers at mosques and stuff like that. That's a local uh, uh, Kiss Democrat candidate. Yeah, has Democrat, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's. It's that would have been completely unacceptable, mm-hmm. you know, five ten years ago. Abortion legislation. Abortion legislation. That. I mean, even you know, even things that we might think of as being relatively tame, like you know, you know, law and order, yeah. tough on crime. Yeah. I mean, in Sweden, those kinds of things were not really discussed in that in that way. You might yeah. say it a different way. But of course, this is something that's happened across Europe. I mean, if you look at the Netherlands, if you look at France, if you look at Germany, the way in which. This discussion about immigration has influenced parties outside of the far right. And, you know, in the Netherlands, for example, a lot of the political parties basically adopted the rhetoric of the Mm. far right in their campaigns in order to attract voters. Social Democrats in Sweden have now come out much more firmly against sort of immigration and tough on crime and jobs for Swedes, things that would never have been said. So absolutely, there's been... I mean, you see, basically in 2006, you saw a sort of reaction like we're never going to be like this, mm. and within 10 years, you've seen a you've seen a fairly heavy adoption of the rhetoric that's come from the far right. Mm. Um, and as the election approaches in a month, of course, it has to do with the fact that people are realizing like we're going to be in a very sticky situation here in Sweden in terms of the parliament. Mm. I mean. Even if the Sweden Democrats come second, it's going to be another minority government. If they win, can they form a coalition? Mm-hmm. I mean, is any party really willing to go into a coalition with them? Um, and so, from what I've read, and I'm not a political scientist, the, the the adopting the rhetoric of your opponent, particularly sort of anti-immigration rhetoric, for example, yep. tends to backfire. Yeah. And I, I mean, and I'm not. This I'm saying this completely out of sort of just my own head, but. You would imagine that, you know, voters who wanted to vote social democratic, they might be disenchanted with the notion that they're adopting this kind of rhetoric and abandon them. Or they might think, well, if they're going to say this, why don't I just vote for the party that's actually been standing for it (laughs) for 20 years? On the other hand, people who would vote for the Sweden Democrats look at that and say, well, now it's a legitimate political Angle. Yeah. So uh, why would I go to the social democrats? Yeah. They're basically. De- so I mean, the it's argument in, in order trying to attract voters with this kind of rhetoric, I think actually probably will backfire in the long run. Mm. But absolutely, I think I think um, you have seen a very clear shift in Sweden towards at least politically what people are, are saying and how they put it, mm. and this is clearly linked to the sort of wave of what is generally termed as populism. But uh, Kasmuda who's a sort of a, a, a a scholar from the United States who's Dutch has said he prefers the term nativism to populism because yeah, yeah, yeah. populism cuts both ways to the left and right. Yeah. So by calling it populism, like what's populist about a lot of the policies? Yeah. It's actually better to talk about it in terms of nativism, which is the, the idea that, you know, the policy should really be in the benefit of those who are quote, you know, natives to the country. Mm.
0: The proof of the pudding in that though, um, in that the Social Democrats in Norway and in Finland mm. and in Denmark all did the same thing mm-hmm. as the Sweden, mm-hmm. as the mm-hmm. Swedish Social Democrats yeah. did for this election. Mm-hmm. They did it earlier, and it didn't work. Yeah, it didn't work. And we ended up with parties, with the True Finns, with yeah. uh, the Danish People's Party, yep. with these people getting closer to power. Now, the, the question I have for you, and again, from a media, from a journalistic mm-hmm. perspective, if you're going to meet this uh, in, in a sort of an uh, objective and an unbiased and a, and a factually accurate way,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how does one even begin to report these things? Like, you know, what's the right thing to do if you wake up on the Monday, first Monday in September, Mm -hmm. and the Sweden Democrats are part of the government? How do you treat your work then? Can you cover them the same way as you would cover uh, a normal <laughs> political party, in quotation marks, or do you have to adjust what you're doing in the same ways you might do with uh, covering global warming or racism, as you mentioned, because some things just aren't equal?
1: Well, I think that you have to, co- yeah, I mean, I, it's a very good question. I think you have to cover them as you should cover any political party, right? I mean, and of course, context matters. What, what, what they've said in the past matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, if, if, if that happens in the same way that it's happened, as you said, in Finland and in other countries, I mean, really, as I said, the goal of journalism is to, 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 to keep an eye on power, right? And if power lies in the hands of a group of people who have expressed certain views before, it's completely legitimate to examine those mm. angles. As you, but th- that's the way it should be covered regardless of the political party. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't think that the argument that journalism should be done differently depending on the party, the way in which the party reacts to its coverage. Now look at the United States. We keep using America as an example, and I don't think that's going to happen here, but the way in which Trump has sort of attacked the media as a result, there you see a very clear example of an administration that is not willing to go along with the media and to sort of, you know, is, is openly attacking them and calling them the enemy of the people. Yeah. Then the question is, okay, what do you do in that situation? You've got an openly hostile government. And that could happen if you had a government here that feels that it's being sort of uh, treated badly by mm-hmm. the media. So then what did the media do? Well, what the media should do is the media, interestingly, the criticism of the coverage of Trump is there's too much coverage of what he says yeah. and not enough coverage of what's happening in Congress and the Senate. Yeah, what are you doing? That's what yeah. you should be covering. So while people are at the press conference outraged about Sarah Sanders telling another yet another lie, yeah. meanwhile, legislation's being passed that sort of uh, sort of eliminates environmental rules or, you know, sort of gets sort of rules about clean water somewhere. I mean, yeah. So what I mean is there's a very big distraction element there. And yeah. that's the danger, I think, that should be avoided in any country in Europe if this happens. Mm. If you get a party in power that's openly hostile or one that has a politics that you've never seen before, keep your eye on the ball. Mm. I mean, the, the, the ball is not if it's Jimmy Orkerson or if it's Donald Trump or if it's Pim in, you know, mm. or, or it, 20 years ago or if it's Wilders it's very easy to fall into the trap of letting these kind of incendiary comments yeah. distract you from the real thing, for example, about the fact that who gets nominated to the Supreme Court in the United States. Yeah. So while Trump is tweeting something about some journalist from ESPN, mm-hmm. meanwhile, there's a guy now in the Supreme Court who gonna be sitting there for 30 years, yeah. right? So which one is more important from a Democratic perspective? And I, of course, it's very tempting when you have someone making sort of, you know, ethnocentric comments or misogynistic comments to say how can we have a guy like this as president? Mm. The bigger question is who's running the United States mm. right now?
0: And, and what are they doing? And what are they doing? doing
1: with that power? You've got a guy in power who's got a basic rubber stamp almost, and even, even then he can't get stuff, everything rubber stamped. Mm. Things are getting passed, you've got a Democratic Party that's essentially uh, in disarray, I mean not doing a great job I would yeah. say in the US. That's what journalists should be focusing on. (laughs) But, of course, what happens is, and people are arguing this is actually a strategy from Trump's administration, let him say this stuff, and in the meanwhile, in the background, who knows what's going on, right? And I, I would imagine that if that happened here, you, you would probably see, maybe see the same kind of thing. You'd see a focus on the personality, the history, which is very important. Mm. But really keeping an eye on exactly what it is, is being done in terms of policy. Yeah, I think that's really the goal of journalism. And, and, and the funny thing is that shouldn't change regardless of the party. Yeah. But if you have a party that maybe hasn't been in power before, you're likely to see more teething problems than you would see. Like when Pim Fortown in the Netherlands was killed and his party got elected anyway, Mm. the government collapsed within six months because they were completely disorganized. I mean that kind of thing is the kind of thing that would be interesting to see if it happens here in that case. Same as the Trump administration, completely disorganized. But what's interesting is, if this was any other administration in the United States, if this was an established democratic administration doing these kinds of things, they would, I mean, I don't know what would happen. But it's hard (laughs) to believe that without a leader like Trump who's distracting people, that this kind of thing would be able to continue. Go on and on. Right, so I think that uh, it's a very good question, like what would happen the next morning for journalism, and I think that's what should happen. But that's what should happen every morning, and that's, to get back to this notion of the sort of comfortable relationship between power and media, when you have an, when your relationship is too comfortable, you then lose that distance. Yeah. And uh, you should you should have that distance regardless of the administration.
0: Yeah, I described this on a, an Irish podcast the other day as I'm friendly with certain journalists, but they should yeah. never be happy to. See, or sorry, certain politicians, yeah. but they should never be happy yeah, to see me. Exactly, and and that's the way that we kind of got to keep it. Just putting briefly into this discussion to let you know that the journalism I put out on Patreon is and always will be free. But if you can afford the price of a cup of coffee or a pint every month, I'd really appreciate it because it means that I can do more of it. So go over to patreon.com forward slash in Stockholm if you can afford it. And I'd be very happy to have you as a patron. We're going to go back to the discussion now, uh, just to let you know that here, Christian talks a lot about platforming. He actually means de-platforming, okay? So just keep that in mind as you listen. And one of the things that came up in Europe this week, it was a sort of a a bubbling understory there, um, was an Irish organization called Web Summit who invited Marine Le Pen to Mm. speak at an event in Portugal. Now, there was a backlash, and she was subsequently disinvited. And it started off this discussion about platforming people like Marine Le Pen, and whether or not they should be giving a platform at all. It also started this discussion around freedom of speech, which has nothing to do with whether private organizations (laughs) give you a platform. But in your view, uh, and I know this is slightly outside the the realm here, but is that something, do you think that, uh, is is the discussion around platforming Mm. helpful, is the tactic of not platforming people helpful? How do you see? it?
1: I mean, there have been instances of platforming that i found to be unhelpful. I think there's sometimes, for example, if you have people coming in who are conservatives, who are gonna speak at universities, mm. that haven't said anything particularly egregious. I mean, I don't think necessarily silencing people works mm. in that way. Marine Le Pen is, I would say, a slightly different case here. I yeah. mean, I, I mean, but but i mean you know for example there's a lot of discussion that universities in the united states are sort of platforming conservatives yeah. there's not really a lot of evidence for that it tends to be the same three or four people that get platformed all the time yeah uh, jordan peterson and other people like that but i mean i think that yeah one thing is this freedom of speech thing which is a completely it's a complete red herring i mm. mean you know Alex Jones on Facebook and Twitter and this kind yeah. of notion. I mean, censorship is the state stopping you from saying something before you say it. You, nobody has an inalienable right to go on Facebook and post something. Yeah. These are privately, and the irony is also, to get back to the question of irony, is that the people who, who hawkishly promote the free market the hardest are the ones who complain the most when the free market says, we don't want your products, we're losing money. Yeah. In other words, capitalism. <laughs> so when capitalists say, you know what, you're hurting my bottom line, yeah. go somewhere else, Suddenly, they throw their hands in the air and say, "Like, oh, these globalists are censoring my." S-. Well, this is what you wanted. Yeah. You want, and you know, welcome to the world of people on the left who have been trying to get their voice into the free market of ideas in quotation marks for 50 years and are co- routinely rejected because it doesn't fit into an advertising worldview. Yeah. See, so I mean, I find that so, di- and I this is so disingenuous that argument, of course. But to get back to the point about platforming here, that's part of it. Uh, is part of it is the speech that you have in terms of uh, commercial venues, but I, I'm not, I, I do, I mean, Marine Le Pen is a different thing. I mean, to to invite someone who sort of openly expressed racist comments and, you know, it's it, that's a, to me, is a different thing than inviting in a, a speaker f- from a conservative organization that's sort of promoting, for example, conservative worldview. Mm. I mean, you should have that discussion. I mean, it, it's sort of, I find it somewhat, it, it depends on the person is, I mean, I can't give examples here. But to sort of blanket platform people because they stand for a conservative point of view, I think does nothing for the students necessarily. Because they're gonna encounter this discussion in the real world. If they're gonna go out as journalists, they're gonna meet politicians with this point of view. And the best thing to do is to train people to argue and discuss things critically and to examine power critically. So in that way, I, found, I find that the sort of the blanket notion of platforming to be somewhat problematic.
0: Or, or de-platforming of de-platforming, of not providing them with a platform. Yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: Deep, deep, excuse me, deep, the whole time here I was saying de but, but But sort of taking away people or shouting them down and stuff like that. Yeah. No, I'm not, I can't say that I'm necessarily, but if it's people who have openly advocated violence or discrimination or racism, Mm. then as an organization you have an ethical question to ask yourself about why you're inviting this person to speak and to give them a platform. Mm. If it's a person who is uh, simply expressing a political point of view that you disagree with but hasn't necessarily advocated violence or hatred, then I think it's it's valuable to have that discussion with people, because I mean, that's the world we live in. We're gonna have a parliament here where we're gonna have Different points of view it's as we do in the United States yeah um, and so I think uh, eliminating all discussion can be problematic, and I think that uh, sometimes the reaction can be too knee jerk mm. and you sort of eliminate the possibility of actually having a critical dialogue that actually helps yeah because it also promotes the notion that people just don't want to speak to you and that you know this sort of this notion of sort of a conspiracy against the right yeah the, the Leftists shouldn't be worried about that conspiracy thing, but I think the problem is that it, it sort of, it, it denies you the possibility to hear the argument from the other side. Yeah. And you can't make a coherent argument on, for your political point of view unless you understand your opponent's point of view. And I think that's one of the problems when you look at social media, is I don't think people necessarily follow conservatives and people they don't agree with. I do, right? Yeah. So I constantly read this stuff. And you can't really articulate an argument unless you've heard the counter argument.
0: Yeah. I was making this point to somebody last night because, you know, if you're going to say, okay, Marie Le Pen has an inalienable right to a platform to speak the way she wants. Yes. uh, Well, then you have to understand what it is she says. Yes. And, like, if you're okay with that, that's fine. But I referred to, um, there was a case here in Sweden where a Roman man was born to death in a tent. Yes. So if you, and that's fine with certain people on the far right, yes. you know. So But if you want a platform, you go right ahead and do it. Yes. But you've got to live with that then. Yes, You've got to exactly. live with being able to put those things out there. And when you let the genie out of the bottle, yes. and this is where I go back to sort of 16 years ago when you and I were starting our, our democratic lives here, so yeah. paying attention to these things, that it is very, very hard to get it back in, yeah. you know. Where do you see journalism going? You're going to be taking a bunch of new students, yeah. bright-eyed, thinking they're all going to have a column in the New York Times yeah, yeah. in a few years. Where do you see journalism in 5, 10, 15 years?
1: Well, I mean, one of the problems for journalists is the sort of economic situation with journalism in terms of financing and, and, and money. I mean, it's, it's a difficult market for journalists. Yeah. I mean, you know, you see a lot more freelancers, you see a lot less foreign correspondents. Um, and there's a lot more lack of clarity in terms of what people are going to be doing. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, what's interesting is uh, the sort of counter-reaction to what we're seeing in terms of the criticism of journalism. You're seeing m- larger media organizations sort of regaining their legitimacy in a way. Yeah. I mean, in, in a weird way, of course, what's happened in the United States and what's happening in Europe is that the rise of... Alternative right-wing media and the sort of fake news discussion has, in a way, bolstered established media. Yeah, you can ask if that's necessarily a good thing because I mean, should maybe they should be changing the way they do business as well. Yeah. So I think that for for newcomers, I think there's. I mean, look, we're well past the stage from 15 years ago where the internet was going to democratize journalism. I mean, there's a lot of this discussion about you know we're going to see sort of, you know, yeah, well, there's, there's money, people yeah. have to eat. Yeah. So yes, I can post as much as I want online, but I mean, it doesn't pay the bills. And as we, we just had this discussion, there's lots of journalists out there who are very good who can't sell anything, mm-hmm. uh, you know, can't get, they're, they're freelancers, they can't get anything sold. Um, I think that for, I think that all you can do if you're educating journalists is to teach journalists, teach the students how to conduct good journalism, how to, how to fact check, how to do good critical journalism, how to look at sources, you know, think about think about society and politics with a and, a criti- and critical isn't necessarily criticism, mm. and I think that's what you can do. Um, the market is tough, right? And so, what what do you teach uh, journalism students about the market? Well, you can tell them it's a tough market out there, and, and of course, they have to be a lot more. Um, Savvy probably than they had to be 20 or 30 years ago in terms of technology and these this is a much more public job Than it used to be in yeah. a lot of ways um, But I Sweden's a small market. That's the other thing. Yeah. I mean, you know speaking Swedish doesn't I mean we're you're from Ireland I'm from the United States. I grew up in Britain if you speak English the world is your oyster yeah. If you're Swedish the world is not your oyster in terms of language, so there's that issue as well uh, one thing I think probably that's not significantly discussed is the importance of local journalism. Yeah. I think of all of the things we talk about here, very little stuff is done about local newspapers. They're struggling in Sweden. You, you see corporations, large corporations, buying more and more local papers and turning them into sort of a large conglomerate. Yeah. And, and that's, that's bad. I mean, not necessarily that the media companies are bad, but it's bad that local newspapers are suffering. Mm. Um, because actually, local journalism is where it's at. Yeah. I mean, actually, in a lot of ways. Uh, that's where politics hits the ground. Mm. Um, and I think you know, we should really encourage our students to think more in terms of local journalism than they do. On the other hand, it's very easy to tell journal- students to work in local journalism when there's not a lot of jobs and it's yeah. a tough market. Yeah. But I think that's probably one thing where that, that we as academics should push harder. And I don't just mean people who train journalists, but people who do research as well. We tend to focus on large newspaper outlets we tend to focus on national papers, big media. Mm. But local news, actually for a lot of people, is is the kind of news that they find most uh, attractive and yeah. closest to them because it has to do with the community that they live in. Mm. And it's the one that we ignore the most. It's ironic, right, because it's not the sexy kind of stuff. Local yeah. politics is boring. I don't want to read about what... But actually, that's the You know, my kid's school, is he going to get money? Is my water clean? How does the local government... You know... Gothenburg, for example, looks like it's on the verge of electing a, a non-established party for local government, Demokrottina, it's a sort of yeah. n- brand new party. Yeah. H- how's that happening? <laughs> right? w- w- what <laughs> is going on that? in Gothenburg? Yeah. Sweden Democrats are in fifth in the latest poll. Yeah. I mean, this is a very interesting, so here you have a populist party, but that is not using immigration. That's yeah. a very interesting dynamic there. Mm-hmm. But that requires really local knowledge. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I, I don't hear that being discussed in Sweden. This is the second largest city in Sweden. We have an election coming up, and they're sort of bucking the trend. Yeah. That kind of thing is super important. Yeah. I think and it, I mean, I think it would add a lot to a national discussion of politics if you say, what if we had a party like that nationally mm. that was populist in quotation marks, mm. but not far left, far right, but centrist and did not have immigrants? I mean, would we see the same kind of reaction? In other words, is the disenchantment more to do with the established party rather than an enchantment with the alternative between yeah, yeah. Democrats? Yeah. We don't have that discussion very often. Yeah. And you could use Gothenburg. So I think for students, that's the kind of thing that's worth pointing out to them. Right. That, there's, that there's value in this kind of stuff that maybe we don't necessarily think of as value. Because everybody wants to start working at Dawkins Miehete or on Swedish television or on TV4, but your career tends to start more at the local level. Yeah. And that's good.
0: One of the best pieces of advice I ever got was one of the former uh, Reuters editors here in Stockholm, a man called Stephen Brown, and he always said to me to remember that journalism is not an art; it's a trade.
1: Yes, exactly. It, it, it is a trade, and I mean, and you learn your trade to working small to start with. I mean, you got to learn how to interview people, you got to learn how to get access to politics, and that's easier to do at the local level. Yeah. But also, politics at the local level, you learn a lot from that. Yeah. It can be vicious. It's like way more exciting than you think it is. And, uh, but again, it's, 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 uh, it also has to do in the way in which we market media itself yeah. and technology. And this is a much broader question. We tend to make this kind of larger stuff very, very sexy. I mean, we talk about big media, we talk about these things. And students, as you say, come in thinking that they're gonna make these kinds. Well, you know, um, it's also about teaching people uh, the value of politics at the low. And then we actually have a, a course starting that how do journalists relate to local authorities? Yeah. How do you go talk to someone at immigration advocate or yeah. a, a judge? Yeah, these kinds of things. How do you actually do reporting about health? Yeah, that kind of stuff's important. So that kind of gets lost in the mix in this kind of technology discussion of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Uh, how do you actually go and meet someone who works at the Waldminderheit and mm. a sort of election council and you know, how do you talk about these things? But I think
0: that comes back full circle to kind of where we started, that journalism in itself hasn't changed. Even though the no. world around us has, it no. still goes back to the same
1: point. <laughs> no, I mean, we, that, that gets said all the time here and it's one of the things that the many people in this department talk about, which is that fundamentally journalism hasn't changed. I mean, the same sort of values, But the problem is, did we apply those values before? Mm. I mean, there's a certain mythology also, and I say this as someone who's not really, hasn't worked as professionally as an academic, mm-hmm. but someone who talks to a lot of journalists, mm-hmm. you see this a lot from journalism. Ah, uh, you know, for example, there was a big conference in Gothenburg a couple of years ago where, you know, instead of make America great again, it was make journalism great again, oh right? And my question was, when was it great? And I, I don't mean that as a, that wasn't meant to be a snide comment, yeah. but what I mean is a sort of collective pat on the back I don't, that's not a good thing. No. I think you should always be striving to improve your work, especially in the United States, which, which is to get back to this 300 opinion pieces about why the free speech is important. Mm-hmm. That collective patting yourself on the back it, it rubs me the wrong way. Because, yeah. I mean, the United States media bear a great deal of responsibility for the problem that we're in right now. Yeah. And by, by using Trump, like saying saying at least we're not Fox News, I don't find that to be a particularly good argument.
0: It's not a very lofty goal. Really. You no, know, I mean, you know,
1: the bar <laughs> is awfully low. The bar should be much higher. And, and, and I mean that the fake news thing that Trump is pushing, has actually allowed mainstream US outlets to push that argument. Mm. Like, you know, you're calling us fake news? Well, we're not, we're really good. I mean, we're the New York Times, we're the Washington Post. Mm. And resting on your laurels in that way, yeah. I don't think that does anything for anybody. And actually, in a lot of ways, it actually reinforces the notion that there's a sort of snobby el- elitism amongst journalists. Mm. Instead, they should say, you know what? We should strive to be better than we were before. Yeah. You know, may, maybe we led. If you know, I'd love for someone to say maybe this situation was a result of our journalism previously. Yeah. I mean, no one says that, though.
0: <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Christian Christensen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. There you go, some fascinating insight there and a timely reminder not to abandon the core principles of journalism no matter what you're covering. A lot of the coverage of far-right administrations consists of just pointing at them and shouting about how crazy they are. But it's only when you really dig into the detail and see what laws they're passing and where the taxes they are spending are going that people will actually sit up and take notice of what you're doing. Uh, remember that this podcast is free as is everything that i put out on patreon but i can only do it if you continue to support me so please do Uh, among other things i'll be talking to a guest in the coming weeks about writing about disability and other minority issues on the podcast as well as dropping a pretty huge story about corruption that i'm working on i can't do this without your support so if you can please become a patron for a couple of dollars or five dollars a month if you can and let me work for you I'll leave you this week with a quote from misunderstood genocidal racist Winston Churchill who said, A lie is halfway around the world before the truth has got its pants on. Have a great week.